Let's take a look at the great encouragement found in Ephesians chapter 1. In the next couple of episodes of Truth Trek, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1 and some of the great encouragements found there from the Apostle Paul. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about being spiritually blessed as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And we're going to realize how blessed we are. We're blessed because we are in Christ. Being in Christ defines who we are. And in Ephesians, Paul explains that those in Christ are special. Not only are they special as adopted children of God, they are special because they are different from the world. Paul wrote this letter to the Christians of the early age, not only in Ephesus, but around the region. This letter was different from many of Paul's other letters to specific churches that addressed specific local issues at those churches. This letter is much broader, telling Christians that they have hope in Christ and instructing them to live worthily of that hope. Because this letter is not specifically addressing problems in a church, but rather encourages believers to walk in the light of truth and let their lives reflect the grace they have received in Christ, it's a great book of the Bible to review. As I mentioned, the book of Ephesians was written to be a circular letter. It was carried to various churches in the region. Paul wrote it with that in mind, so we see some differences from those other letters. For example, there are no personal greetings here. Most of Paul's writings mention specific people, and Ephesians makes no mention of anyone in particular other than Tychicus, who Paul sent to deliver it. Also, some reliable manuscripts did not include the words in Ephesus, leading some scholars to believe that while Ephesus was likely the first church to receive the letter, it was never written specifically for them, or only for them, but rather for all Christians. So after I read up on this subject, I thought that was a good assessment. So let's look at the greeting, for it really lays down for us the basis of why Paul was writing it. Ephesians chapter 1, I'll read the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the letter may not have originally contained the words in Ephesus, but there is really no dispute about the rest of the letter. As in the case of the rest of the Bible, the known manuscripts agree about 99% of the time. So we have good reason to accept that the translators had good original Greek to work with. However, we need to remember that we rely on translators. So our English translations are not considered the inspired infallible word, but Paul's original letter was. In verse 1, we see the phrase, the faithful in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, the words used here are actually words that can be used to describe a location or a placement. What does it mean for someone to say they are in a certain city or location? For example, if you were on the phone with a friend who said, I am in Moscow, what would go through your mind? 
We may have images of the Kremlin, the most famous structure in Russia. We may think of our friend as being somewhere cold. We would understand that they would need to speak a different language in order to be understood and function there. They would need to understand the currency there and to use the currency of that town. They would also have to understand certain local customs and traditions if they wanted to fit in. In the same way, us being in whatever city we're in today means something different than if we said we were in another place. So being in Christ means something different than not being in Christ. For those of us in Christ, we also need to learn what that means. It affects every part of our lives. Just as a visitor to Moscow needs to shed, at least temporarily, some of their uh, American ways, if they're coming from America, in order to learn and merge into that culture, the Christian must also learn what it means to be in Christ. Being in Christ means we are in Him and He in us. And for us to function well in that relationship, then we need to learn His language take on his mannerisms, and learn how we are expected to interact with him and with his church. And this is what the letter to Ephesians is all about. Verse 2 is very recognizable as Paul's standard introduction, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what grace Paul speaks of when he realizes that God has done for him and how he was pulled from darkness into light. When Paul writes this greeting, he is not only giving the standard greeting of the time, but is personalizing it for those who have received the grace of God through Jesus. This letter, then, is not meant for unbelievers. They can benefit from it if they read it and learn how to live well with others, but it will never be the same as it will be for the believer, for it gives us the very important tools we need to live together as the body of Christ in unity and love. After the introduction in the first two verses, Paul goes into what is often referred to as a doxology. This is just a fancy way of saying that his heart is pouring out his appreciation to God verbally, his love for his Savior, and his hope for others to be able to respond in a similar manner. In a way, he is like a long-distance worship leader. His letter is aimed to cause those who read it or hear it to also respond with gratitude and full hearts, just as Paul has done. In verses 3 to 14, we see three main parts, which will also serve as the outline, so to speak, because Paul is reminding us of three things. He's reminding us how we are blessed by the Father, how we are redeemed by the Son, and how we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. First of all, blessed by the Father. We are blessed by the Father, Paul says, because this Father has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We that believe in Christ are certainly blessed. Every spiritual blessing we have comes from God because He chooses to bless us. There's not one thing we can do to merit God's grace, mercy, and love. We absolutely cannot earn it. There are no works, no words, no worship that we can offer in order to cause him to give us anything. He is under no obligation to do anything at all for us, no matter what we do, no matter how good we think we are, and no matter how we compare ourselves to everyone else. We have not earned God's grace. We have not deserved his mercy, and we aren't loved by him because of some merit we deserve. God does it all. He gives us 
every spiritual blessing. Note that Paul is not focused on material or physical blessings. He's concerned here and concerned in all his writings upon the spiritual blessings God bestows. This is not to say that God does not care about our physical needs. He does. However, our focus should not be on what God does for us today, the things that will soon fade away, those blessings which are temporary in nature and have little eternal value, but rather those things that will have everlasting appeal, those things that give us eternal blessing, mainly the blessing of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul makes it clear, and Scripture as a whole, this concept of God's love, mercy, and grace being unmerited, or another way to put that is undeserved. Throughout all of his writings, Paul talks about this, and Scripture as a whole agrees. When we look at Luther and the Reformation, and today is Reformation Day as I'm recording this, it was the idea of unmerited grace and undeserved mercy that he focused on. It was not works, but faith that brought salvation. And this was in contrast to the Catholic Church, which had then, and still retains, an element of the belief that actions, words, or in many cases, donations of money, would save one's soul. And Luther said, not so. And here Paul says, not so. But Paul goes a little further, perhaps, than even Luther when he says that not only does God bless and show mercy, love, and grace to people who do not earn or deserve it, but all of the action is on God's part. He says that God, in love, predestined us for adoption to sonship in accordance with his pleasure and will. So it is not only the action of God that brings us grace, but he did it because it gives him pleasure to do so, and it is his will to do so. The question always comes up when studying a passage like this that states that God predestined us to receive his grace. Is there free will, or did God choose all who would be saved? This has been a subject of much debate and argument for many centuries, and and until Christ returns, I expect Christians will continue to struggle with it, because the answer to the question involves the mystery of God. Does the Bible teach predestination or man's free will to accept God's grace? Both. The Bible clearly teaches predestination. It's clearly here in Ephesians. The Bible also clearly teaches that man is responsible to take advantage of God's grace. Here Paul is telling us that God decided that he would adopt us, that he would offer his son to redeem us. It is freely given because we could not have earned it. Therefore, the action of our salvation, the means of our salvation, and even our receiving of the salvation are all under the scope of God's pleasure and will. He is the one that did it all. This is why in this passage, Paul is giving a lengthy doxology or praise to God. When Paul considers what God has done, he marvels and he's humbled and amazed that he could be the recipient of such a great spiritual blessing. God did it all. In fact, the Bible says that we can't even believe in Christ without the Holy Spirit drawing us. 
So the entire scope of salvation is carried out and brought to be because each of the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have an active role in saving us. We cannot do it on our own. Paul sees that only through God's grace in selecting him to see the truth could he have been saved. It is the blessing of the Father, it's his pleasure and his will that we are saved. And this realization should cause us to worship. We should praise God for what he has done and is doing in our lives. When we realize what we could have been if he had not chosen to save us, we should respond by giving our best to him as well. We should live our lives in a state of worship for him. We should live our lives in a state of humble obedience to him. We should live our lives with a holy reverence for him. The next point here is that we are redeemed by the Son. God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us that it is in Christ that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Again, this is because of God's grace, which he lavished upon us. That word lavished implies that he has given generously, that he has gone to great lengths to give us wonderful gifts. If we lavish gifts upon someone, it implies that we have done something that is above and beyond what is normally expected. We have through Christ redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins. This is the main thing. Nothing else we can learn or study about God should ever distract us from the fact that we are saved because of the blood of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection are key. We must not ever forget this main thing. Paul is sending this letter to people who already realized their salvation in Christ. They are already redeemed. I chose this term carefully. They realized their salvation in Christ. We often speak of salvation in terms of accepting Christ, and I understand what people mean by that, but I am also one who likes to use precise language, and I feel it's more appropriate to say that a person realized or believed in their salvation. Remember that there is no action that we can take on our own that can save us. It isn't necessarily wrong to say, accept Christ, but when we take into account that God chooses us, that Christ redeems us, and that the Holy Spirit draws us, then we see that it wasn't so much our accepting him, but God accepting us for salvation. In the mystery of the whole thing, we see that God does all the work. So perhaps the moment of salvation is less about us accepting Christ and more about us realizing that he has already saved us. So the Bible is correct when it says, that we are predestined, and also correct when it says that we have responsibility. When we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, then we are saved. It must be both. One can confess Christ and not be saved because they don't truly believe it. And also, one can believe in their heart but never confess it. It takes both of these things on our part. That is where our responsibility in the whole thing lies. By the way, this means that God, and only God, really knows who is his and who isn't. One could appear to be a devout Christ follower and do all the right things in the eyes of the church and not really be saved. Only God knows the heart. While we can have some idea about someone's devotion based on their fruits, we dare not take God's place in trying to judge 
whether someone is truly saved or not. Remember that we are all going through a process of sanctification, and someone appearing to be behind or ahead of us in that process does not necessarily mean they are or are not saved. What then about our own assurance of salvation? Forget about other people. I want to know if I am saved. How can I be sure, people ask. I've talked with people who say they think they're saved. They're not really sure, though. Well, how do we know? How do we know the salvation message is true? And how do we know if we have really been accepted by God? I had someone say to me, isn't it just about faith? Don't we just hope for the best? I mean, we can't really be certain, can we? My answer is yes, you can be certain. And this brings us to the last part of the passage that I'm reviewing in this episode. Again, in verse 11, Paul mentions that our salvation was predestined, that we were chosen. Again, the emphasis is on God's desire to save us. This brings Paul to a state of near ecstasy as he marvels at God's plan. But where is the assurance? How can the Christian be certain that they are saved. Paul says that the Christians are included in Christ. Again, is that phrase Paul frequently uses, in Christ. When are they included in Christ? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. Faith comes when we hear the gospel explained. He says, when you believed, again, We can receive the message of truth and not believe, but Paul's writing to those who did believe. But when we believed, we were marked with a seal, and the seal is the Holy Spirit. All believers receive the Holy Spirit. But this passage makes it clear that all believers, all true believers, are marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. If you are not certain of your salvation, you can be. This language of a seal had great importance to those Paul was writing to. In his day, a seal meant something was authenticated. A seal carried authority. Pilate had Jesus' tomb sealed. People in positions of power would mark letters with a seal, and the seal had great significance. And I want to give you an example of that significance in those ancient times. Alexander the Great is said to have sent an emissary to Egypt. This emissary was without weapons or military escort, but he carried the seal of Alexander the Great. He met with the king of Egypt, who stood with his army behind him. The emissary communicated to the king the message from Alexander the Great, discontinue hostilities against Alexander's interests. The king of Egypt, wishing to save face, said that he would consider the request and let the emissary know. The emissary then drew a circle in the dirt around the king of Egypt and said, Do not leave the circle without informing me of your response. What an audacious move. The emissary was unarmed and without military support. The king could have had him drawn and quartered for such a bold move against him. One unarmed man against the entire army of Egypt, except for one thing. The emissary carried the seal of Alexander. He carried the authority and power of Alexander. To touch the emissary was to touch Alexander. To disobey the emissary was to disobey Alexander. 
The king of Egypt stood in silence, then said, Tell Alexander he has his request, and stepped out of the circle. Friends, when we realize that we carry the seal of the Spirit of Almighty God, we will look at things a little differently. If you responded to the gospel with belief and a confession, then the Holy Spirit has sealed you. That seal is for our assurance. It also marks us as one of God's own adopted children. Finally, that seal, the Holy Spirit, is also a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption. And this is interesting language as well. We usually consider that we're already redeemed, and that is true, that we are redeemed, but the finality of it is yet to come, and the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of that happening. Where it says the Holy Spirit is a deposit, the word there means a more than earnest. If you're bidding on a house or other purchase, you may be asked to give earnest money. And that's money given as a guarantee that we will later complete the transaction by paying the full amount due. In the case of our guarantee future with God, He has given us a deposit or earnest that gives us the assurance that our transaction will be completed. That, that is the transaction of our salvation. And that is why the one who is saved has an assurance that their salvation is real, that they really are one that God claims as his own, those who will inherit the kingdom of God. Finally, let's look at the final phrase here and remember that all of this, being blessed by the Father, being redeemed by the Son, and being sealed by the Holy Spirit is for one reason, Paul says, to the praise of his glory. God gets the glory. God has done it all, and through it all, he will be glorified. There's a passage in Isaiah that says, uh, God says, I will not yield my glory to another. We must be careful of this. We cannot take any credit for our own salvation through Jesus Christ, nor can we claim credit for anyone else's salvation. All glory goes to God. We can take no credit for our sanctification, nor can we claim credit for anyone else's sanctification. All glory goes to God. We can take no credit if we've been healed or if we've prayed for someone that's been healed. All glory goes to God. And when Christ returns as our coming King, it will be for God's glory. Friends, God has done it all. He called us. He blessed us. He redeemed us through Jesus Christ, and he seals us with his Holy Spirit. If today you are realizing that God has saved you, then you have to respond. He's done the work already. If you have realized in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you are part of the way there. You need to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Silent prayer in this case won't do the trick. God hears silent prayers but faith in Jesus Christ for salvation requires a verbal confession, a public acknowledgement of your realizing he has saved you and a signal of your desire to make him Lord of your life. So if you want to do that today, you must do it. And there may be others listening that have done the confessing part and maybe even done a good job of living as part of a church, yet you have not in your heart truly believed. You have not yet realized your salvation, though you have proclaimed it. You need to be sealed. God wants to provide you with the confidence of your salvation. 
Perhaps long ago you felt assured, but no longer feel that assurance. God would fill you with the Holy Spirit if you would humbly ask. And if you need to respond to this, please do so. Don't hesitate to make the realization of your salvation complete. It's not too late to walk with Jesus Christ. I'll be looking for you next week on Truth Trek as we look at the next uh, part of this passage and take an exciting adventure together into God's Word. And I want to thank you for listening today. If you found this to be helpful or encouraging, would you please share it with someone who may enjoy joining us on our Truth Trek journey? Also, please like and follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you, and I will see you next time on Truth Trek.